trust has become more transactional. There's now a lot more interest in, in seeing the proof to go beyond just pricing to say, all right, show me, tell me, why should I trust this organization? I think that's the mindset that people bring now to a lot of business relationships. They're looking for those proof points so that they can feel more comfortable as they go through decision-making processes. The B2B Marketing Exchange was created with one goal in mind, to help B2B practitioners across marketing and sales be better at their jobs. Now we're bringing the insights from the stage to your ears. These are the tips and tools you need to succeed. This is the B2B Marketing Exchange Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the B2BMX Podcast. I'm Alicia. And I'm Claudia. And we have a fascinating conversation today with Margot Bloomstein. Um, she is a content strategist. She's worked with a lot of brands, both B2B and B2C. And she has a new book coming out um, on March 2nd called Trustworthy, How the Smartest Brands Beat Cynicism and Bridge the Trust Gap. And we've been talking about trust in marketing, trust in B2B for a while now, but Margot's perspectives and some of the takeaways from the new book are, are simply fascinating, right, Claude? Yeah, I just love it. And, you know, at the end of the day, everybody's got to think about their brand, what it means to not only their audiences, but what it means internally, right? So, mm -hmm. and and to bridge that that gap in trust and, and really kind of deliver that brand experience that people expect. I love how uh, Margot basically said it's, it's really not just marketing's job. It's an entire team effort. Everybody has to understand and agree what this their brand stands for in order to really kind of close that gap and 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 be a trustworthy company and brand to audiences and customers and, and prospects and all of the above. Yeah, absolutely. It really is a collective exercise. And I love that she called that out because more and more we're seeing content people need to understand brand and design and vice versa, right? So she really broke it down. I think trust in marketing has been easier to understand through the lens of like retail and B2C. And we kind of talk about that, but she really shows how a lot of those same principles apply to B2B. So with that, meet Margot. Again, her, her experiences, her insights are fascinating. And I hope that um, they provide you some great starting points as you start to get your content and campaigns up and running in the new year. Margot, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us today. So excited to have you on the show. Thank you so much. I'm excited to chat with you. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's such an exciting yet overwhelming time to be a content marketer. And I say this as a content marketer myself. There's so much opportunity to stand out, but also so much competition. And I think we're going to get into a lot of these trends and subtrends. But first, I would love for you to kind of share your take on what you think is happening in the B2B content landscape specifically, I know you do B2B and B2C, but what's happening in B2B? I mean, if I had to put it in a phrase, it would be platform proliferation. I see how so many content marketers are confronting the fact that many organizations realize or feel like they need to be everywhere all at once. And that's where we start to see little problems creep in because I think their audiences expect them to be everywhere all at once as well. And brands comprise people. 
And it's tough for people to be monolithic and perfectly consistent across all of the channels and contexts in which we operate. And that's okay. That's why you vary your tone depending on the audience. But I think for content marketers that are trying to rise to that challenge of consistency when they're operating across more platforms than ever before, that's especially difficult. And in the B2B landscape, even though we're all kind of aware of those challenges, we don't necessarily offer each other that much slack and grace, I think. People still expect a lot of consistency. So I think the real challenge there is how do you still allow your brand to evolve across channels in a way that is cohesive without necessarily being monolithic? I love that phrase. That's awesome. And you've also done a ton of brand and content strategy work for clients like, I mean, Harvard, University, Fidelity, Canon, Sally Mae, so many great organizations there. So what were some of the most important things that you learned from these clients that drove your work as a strategist? You mentioned a lot of them there. And I think that with the variety of clients with which I partner, I've learned that across all of them, they face some similar challenges. And we don't like to admit it, especially when I'm working with organizations in higher ed. Like you mentioned, Harvard, and I've worked with Tufts and some online for-profit schools as well. And then I compare them to organizations that are far outside of higher ed, like Canon or the American Veterinary Medical Association or Puma or Timberland. And they are very diverse. But a lot of them still face challenges around authenticity, vulnerability, and trust. And those, I think, are some of the biggest issues that as as the web has continued to mature and as content marketing continues to mature, those are the biggest issues that I think we need to face now in 2021. Yeah, I definitely agree. So how did all of these different challenges by some of your clients, how did these experiences really influence or encourage and kind of help you put the new book together? Well, as I said, I think that idea of trust and authenticity and vulnerability, those are phrases that we kind of throw about as buzzwords and especially something like authenticity. Everybody wants to be more authentic. And then I hear that from my clients and I think, well, to what do you want to be more authentic? There's kind of that know thyself element in there. And sometimes what you realize about your brand is not necessarily the truth that you want to expose in the marketplace about your brand. And that's an uphill challenge for many organizations. But I think seeing those issues with authenticity and how brands struggle to be more transparent or embrace vulnerability without really knowing how to unpack that, how to operationalize it beyond being more than just a term in the marketing department, that was something that really influenced me. And then also, as I was starting to, to research some of the themes that I present in the framework that I present in Trustworthy, several years ago, I was seeing roots of this in the political arena and within the media landscape and how it was responding or not responding to trends in the political arena. But my audience isn't there. So I was always curious to wonder, well, how does this apply to business, to consumer brands, to retailers, to B2B organizations and relationships? And very quickly, I started to see that application where the issues with trust and respect and gaslighting and decision-making, 
those things may have started in the political arena where more and more people say they approach relationships and content and information with this sense of cynicism and say, well, everybody lies. You, you can't trust any politician. Everybody's out to get you. And that kind of cynicism undermines our ability to make good decisions, to evaluate information, to evaluate marketing and say, okay, here's what I can take from this to influence maybe a purchase or to influence a decision around a partnership. But when we feel like we can't trust any information that's coming from kind of outside our organization, when we approach everything with um, not so much skepticism, but with cynicism, that's what holds our companies back. That's what holds industries back. That's what holds our economy back. And I think seeing those trends around cynicism and how they undermine trust and undermine relationships, that's what drove me to explore and say, well, how do we make marketing and content and information more trustworthy for our audiences to rebuild their sense of trust in us and also to rebuild their sense of trust in their own ability to make good decisions. Because that's what I think we need to address next. Yeah, so many important points there. And the book, which will be out March 2nd, Trustworthy, How the Smartest Brands Beat Cynicism and Bridge the Trust Gap. There are so many layers. I mean, you just kind of hit on some of the key points in your last response. And I think it just goes to show how nuanced and multifaceted this topic is because I've been reading so much about trust in marketing and authenticity in marketing in this thought leadership and in this content. It's just like, oh, be more human, like take a more human tone. But there's so much more to that, I feel like. And I know I've seen some solid applications, I guess you could say, of consumer brands, retail brands trying to bridge that trust gap, as you say, those that are really zeroing in and doubling down on environmental causes, social issues, et cetera, to really connect with consumers in that more authentic way. And I love that you use the term vulnerable and vulnerability. I haven't heard that much in, in a business context, but I feel like the use of trust in marketing, it's easy to connect the dots for me in like a retail sense or a consumer product sense, just because it feels so human and personal. But I mean, how does this apply to B2B? Like, can you kind of break down the nuances, like how it's similar or how it's different? Like if we were thinking about, say, just like food brand reuse, for example, because I know there's nuance there, but I'd love for you to share your take since obviously you've studied this so closely. Sure. Well, I think a lot of the same lessons can apply in B2B and B2C contexts. But frankly, sometimes it can be easier to see it at play in those B2C contexts where we're relating to brands that, that everybody knows or those kind of kitchen counter companies, so to speak, where maybe it's a particular brand of flour or dish detergent that you've used because you kind of bought it initially without thinking because maybe that's what your parents used or that's what you grew up with. Or maybe you always check the same newspaper every morning, first thing, because that's what you've always checked. That's the media brand on which you, you've come to rely because maybe that's what you kind of grew up reading. That's what was read in your house. So you still always turn to it. And it's that consistency and habit repetition that leads to loyalty. We don't think about it. Those decisions are easy for us because they happen without thinking. I think it's the more nuanced decisions that 
come at times when we're having to evaluate new information, when we're having to maybe take part in a conversation that's going to be around a more expensive or high impact and risky decision where you don't want to get it wrong, where you want to bring in the right CMS for your organization, or maybe you're trying to choose a particular vendor for platform management. Whatever those contexts are, when maybe more eyes are on you and those decisions are more expensive and risky, that's when we need to look at how well we can trust those potential vendors and how well we can really trust our own gut instincts. And when I say that it kind of goes back to the same framework, whether it's evaluating a new consumer product to bring home or to evaluate a new vendor relationship to to bring into the office, that's because I think in both cases, we can look at the framework of how we develop trust on an operational level. So by that, I mean, How can organizations invest in developing a consistent voice visually and verbally that is consistent and cohesive over time? Because it's that familiarity that allows us to to kind of go into those decisions without thinking so much while saying, all right, I know this company. I've worked with this company before. Even if maybe in your organization, you're a new person taking on that relationship, If something still feels familiar there, if there are no surprises, then that's one less kind of emotional and mental hurdle that you have to clear. Beyond voice, I also look at how organizations invest in offering the appropriate amount of detail to their audiences, maybe to their prospective partners, the volume of detail. Because in some cases, for some audiences and the nature of some partner relationships, we need to have a lot of detail and examples to dig into, a lot of evidence. Maybe it's to present to other people in the organization and kind of socialize within the organization or just so that we feel comfortable with it. And in other cases, it's enough to just click through a few case studies and to go on the reputation of the brand itself. And that varies by organization and by relationship. So beyond voice and volume, the other thing, and you mentioned this a little bit that I look at is how organizations can lean into vulnerability. And I talk and write about vulnerability as a strength. And it's kind of similar to maybe like what you've heard from folks like Brene Brown, what she writes about vulnerability in interpersonal relationships. I think there's a lot of value to that thinking when we look at sort of intercorporate relationships as well, how corporations speak to each other and how we speak to our end users and the topics on which we focus. Because vulnerability means taking risks to expose more about who we are, to show like the very human side of our brands. But that's the type of thing that can bring more people into our audiences to expose more about how we operate and how we're continuing to evolve. And it's that sort of evolution in public, prototyping in public, as I write about, that can help strengthen those relationships. I think gone are the days when organizations had to seem like they had everything all figured out, like they were bigger than they were, tougher than they were. That kind of thinking just distances our audiences and our users. There's a lot more value to showing that, all right, if we say we're all in it together, let's talk about the camaraderie of learning and improving our companies because it's that improvement and investment in evolution that is incredibly human and humanizing. 
So many great points. And I think we're going to want to kind of dig into the voice, volume, and vulnerability points a little bit later. But first, I, I do want to kind of talk about the state of trust in B2B specifically. You brought up some great points around the value of established relationships, of more, I guess, community-driven content, whether it be case studies, we're seeing a big uptick in user-generated content. So using real-world examples and experiences to not just validate investments, but kind of build that trust and eliminate any sort of skepticism or cynicism. So again, it's easy to kind of understand the state of trust or I guess, lack thereof in like B2C specifically. I mean, I've been reading studies recently around the state of loyalty and retail and consumer brands and how it's more fragile in these times, largely because of accessibility, cost, things of that nature, I guess, very directly correlated with the state of supply chains and what's happening with pandemic level demand. But what does this kind of look like in the B2B world. So cynicism is a a big underlying talking point for your book that we've talked about a few times thus far. So is it safe to say that trust and cynicism are significant issues in B2B? And I'd love for you to kind of share why you think that is. And if there are any contextual reasons, like in terms of like what's happening today and, and the world that we're living in right now. I would say that are trust and cynicism big issues with which businesses need to contend? Yes, definitely. And I think that we do see the impact from the political arena and from journalists and media outlets maybe changing their views on responsibilities around how they address and cover the political arena, how that has undermined people's belief in those institutions. Even if you don't work in those spaces, even if you don't work in those industries, the effect of that certainly matters in your industry. Because when people feel like they're losing trust in those institutions, maybe the newspaper that they've always read, the media outlets that they've always turned to, when they feel like they can't trust them anymore, that is destabilizing and it affects our ability to trust all information and and kind of all insight from experts and people that we've looked to for expertise across other arenas. And certainly that comes into play in content marketing and, and when businesses are trying to establish their thought leadership and, and their expertise to help people make good decisions, to help other businesses make good decisions. However, I think that attention to trust and cynicism, that shouldn't be a new thing. I think that as organizations have continued to evolve, smart brands have always looked at how they maintain rapport with their clients, with their partners, and with the consumers that support them. I think the ways in which we do that, though, that's what needs to change. Because previously, I think a lot of B2B relationships were just that. They were driven by relationships. But trust has become more transactional. There's now a lot more interest in in seeing the proof to go beyond just pricing to say, all right, show me, tell me, why should I trust this organization? I think that's the mindset that people bring now to a lot of business relationships. They're looking for those proof points so that they can feel more comfortable as they go through decision-making processes. And if we look at organizations like, for example, MailChimp, 
that have evolved over time from being simple email marketing companies to now some of the biggest marketing juggernauts in the world that also support e-commerce and a variety of other business needs. If we look at how they've evolved over time, they've always invested in trust. So in some ways, they've worked to continue to have the same tone that they had with small businesses when they were just a small business. They've had to be honest and open, though, about how they're not such a small business anymore. They continue to have some kind of quirky features in their marketing, but it used to be that they would show Freddie, the MailChimp monkey, and he would be speaking to people. You'd hear kind of his tone of voice coming through the content. That doesn't happen so much anymore, but they have still maintained very familiar elements about the brand, like the color scheme, the illustration style. That's evolved over time to become a little bit more mature, but they're still investing in campaigns and events and in other ways to engage their audience in a way that feels just as fun and useful as it always has. They've also done a lot to expose their roadmaps so that people know that as this company is continuing to evolve, they're not going to be left behind. They're not going to be getting rid of features and functionality that were so core to the brand, but instead showing people how they'll still continue to support them. And I think it's in that openness and investment in saying, here's where we're going. Let's tell you lots about that. Let's show you examples of where we came from and where we're going. Just kind of that focus on the roadmap alone has helped them maintain rapport with their different audiences. So, I mean, to go back to your question of if business trust is wavering now, I don't know that it is. I think we definitely have a lot more cynicism, though. And I think the ways in which we build trust have to change. Yeah, and I definitely agree, especially, and now we have a lot of these other platforms, whether they're like G2 or Trust Radius, where they're almost reviews of different organizations and stuff like that. So you have to kind of be able to stay on top of all of that in order to maintain that trust and continue that relationship with customers. We've been talking about a lot of these keywords throughout the conversation, but your book is built upon a framework and these keywords, voice, volume, vulnerability. So I'd love to kind of go back to these terms and see if you could break down the intention and impact of each and how they kind of support each other. Sure. Well, voice focuses on how we say what we say, the tone that comes through in a consistent way, visually and verbally. So as I mentioned, like with that example with MailChimp, we're looking at things like editorial style, sentence structure, the tone that comes through in interviews and whatnot, as well as visual representation of their brand, their color scheme, the overall graphic language that they use that comes through in illustrations and photography, the density of information on the page. Their use of typography is not always what someone would call user-friendly or always incredibly accessible when it comes to how they're kind of illustrating things with typography, but it fits with their brand and it fits with the expectations that their target audience has evolved over time. And that's because the way they've evolved their voice is cohesive. It isn't monolithic. Their editorial style guidelines offer guardrails, really, for their internal users so that people have the freedom to flex and grow the brand over its different touch points. And I think that that is so incredibly vital in many organizations because 
really, that's how you empower your copywriters, your editors, your designers, your creative directors. You give them the freedom to evolve the brand in a way that isn't perfectly locked down because also people aren't perfectly locked down. And if we talk about brands being more human, we have to allow for that kind of flexibility, especially across channels and platforms. So if voice is how we communicate, by volume, I mean the level of detail in which we communicate. Long form content or short pithy posts? Are we offering imagery that is rich in detail and nuance, maybe in infographics and diagrams? Or are things more streamlined? Are you showing a photo gallery of a million different images to illustrate an event or a concept or a new product? Or are you able to help people focus on just like the five top images that can tell that story? That differs for every brand. So whenever content marketers ask me, well, how much should we say? How long should this be? I feel like the best answer that I can offer to that is you know you've written or created enough content when it helps your audience make good decisions and feel confident about the decisions that they're making. So I think we can measure trust in many ways in that kind of confidence. So if voice is how we speak, volume is how much we say, Vulnerability describes the risk in communication, how we open up our organizations, maybe to criticism, maybe to skepticism, maybe to kind of feedback that we don't necessarily want, but can actually be good for us. And that's how organizations share more about who they are, where they're going, and the values that they bring together. So when organizations prototype in public to say, you know what, we don't really know how this feature needs to evolve yet, but give us input, that can be incredibly powerful. BuzzFeed has done a lot with that when they're rolling out new features. America's Test Kitchen has worked really well with that to say, sometimes things go wrong here, but we're going to share part of that in our publishing process because it helps you know that if you're doing things too, things can go wrong and you'll be okay with it. Even organizations like the FBI embrace vulnerability in their communication now. When the FBI was rolling out and updating their crime statistics database, the interface that they had initially created for it was in some ways a little too perfect. It presented information that was not necessarily complete because so much of it is self-reported by different jurisdictions. It was presenting that information and people were looking to it, journalists were looking to it, and saying, oh, okay, this is the final end-all, be-all. This information is comprehensive, when it wasn't. So they needed to bring in a lot more content, a lot more disclaimers, and visual cues to indicate when information was continuing to evolve, when they were still looking for input on that information. And that's an example of vulnerability not as weakness, but as strength. For an organization to be able to say, we have faith in our process, we know that the information we have is good, but we're continuing to collect information, that supports the FBI, that supports Zoom, that supports Airbnb, that supports America's Test Kitchen, and even MailChimp when they're exposing parts of their process to say, here's where we think we're going, but give us feedback. That's an incredibly rich experience. Vulnerability, though, can also refer to how organizations expose their values to say, this is who we are. These are the causes that we support. That can turn off some potential partners. That can turn off some customers. But what most organizations find is when they do share their values and the causes that they support, 
it helps more people turn to them and say, you identify with that. We identify with that too. Let's do business together. Like some of the examples that I share in Trustworthy come from organizations like TED, like Penzi's Spices, companies that you would say, "Mm, stay in your lane. Maybe don't get into those social issues. But more and more, we realize that's what makes those relationships work. That's what helps our relationships get beyond just the transactional kind of trust. I love that. And honestly, I mean, at the end of the day, you just got to keep it real, right? I mean, if something's not working, just be vocal about it and share with your clients or audience what you're doing to kind of fix it. And that automatically just generates that authenticity and and really showcases that vulnerability. Like we're all human, right? So it's not like anybody's going to start running around with torches because you said something and then you're trying to fix it. But <laughs> you also share some really great takeaways. And you mentioned this before with designers, marketers, and content strategists. So in the book, there are insights in there for all of these types of groups. One group isn't obviously like manning the entire ship. And and alignment is so important, especially in, in B2B, whether it's B2B or B2C, and just in organizations in general, especially in these times. So why do you think it's this collaboration between design teams and marketers and content strategists is so crucial? And I guess, what kind of roles do each of these parties play in building trust and credibility? Oh, that's a terrific question because I do think that, yeah, we can't say that any one group can fix this problem. I mean, if we're seeing problems with trust across our economy, we know that they're bigger than any one group or company or brand. But still, that does not mean that we are absolved of the responsibility of addressing it. And I think once we can work within our individual organizations to help bolster the confidence of our respective audiences, that's what they can bring then to other experiences and other ways that they engage across the economy. So I think everyone doing their part is what we do to right this ship. And within organizations, I see design and verbal content creation. So design and content strategy as two sides of the same coin. And of course, we've all seen brands where It doesn't really look like that, where maybe they look one way and sound another, and it's just a very bifurcated experience. And that can be incredibly disturbing to an audience because you don't really know how to interact with the company then. You you don't know what sort of personality you're going to be getting from them. And I think in those cases, when we look at the dual responsibility of designers and content marketers and content strategists to make good on a marketing strategy to help execute on it, we need all those different legs of the stool. We need to make sure that we have the broader strategy and that creative direction and design and graphic design can support it. And that content strategy, looking across different content types and channels and content marketing and social media strategy and copywriting can all support it so that we can create more cohesive, consistent experiences for our target audiences. Again, whether they are in a B2B or B2C context, because even when we're just engaging with other companies, those companies comprise people. We want to create good experiences for them as well. That's not a nice to have. That's the main thing that you have to have. Because if you don't create that good experience, of course, they'll go elsewhere. And I think that kind of alignment and consistency across those groups is necessary 
Because for one, we have people in our target audiences that learn different ways. Some people are more auditory learners. Some prefer to get their information through infographics and photography that they can peruse. When they can pour over information in that way, that's the best kind of learning experience for them. And if we want to support people to be more confident in their decisions, we need to make sure that we're investing in how they take in information and how they learn to make good decisions. So we need to serve them all in that way. And then by creating a cohesive experience across design and content and marketing, that's what creates that more trustworthy experience as well. Yeah, some great points. I think having that consistency between content and design, I know more than ever in in my role, I'm collaborating more with design. I'm figuring out the best way to write for certain experiences. So a lot of what you're saying really resonates with me personally. And I'm glad you brought up MailChimp as an example earlier, because I really do think they do a fantastic job of staying true to their brand and resonating with their audience, but still finding fun and clever ways to stand out, which I love your quick thoughts before we close things out around kind of striking that balance, right? Because I know there's so much content out there. I mean, standing out to your target audience, not just driving engagement, but actual action is just an ongoing talking point in our world, right? Like how do you get people to see your brand and engage with your brand when there's so many options out there. And some people say, oh, you got to take risks. You've got to double down on a, a really creative theme or you have to do interactive. Like there's some risk taking and, and an experimentation, I guess, in, involved in that. But how do you do that while still keeping those elements of trust in check? Are there any like key recommendations that you would have there? I mean, you probably keep hearing me talk about consistency and certainly a case of, I think, consistency next to cleanliness, next to godliness type of thinking. (laughs) But I would say the first thing to realize is not all channels fit all communication goals. Not all channels are right for all brands. So, I mean, for example, if you're working maybe for an academic brand or a software brand that needs to be perceived as serious and technical and rigorous, probably doesn't make sense to create branded games around your content. But maybe it does make sense to partner with ghostwriters, get more of like the thought leadership out from your organization in the form of of books and white papers, maybe bring some of that into LinkedIn. Then again, if you're an organization, like you said, that wants to have more fun and where your audience is looking for you to have more fun with the content as well, maybe you want to be perceived as more engaged and relevant and hip So instead of investing in white papers, you pull more of the content into pithy blog posts and the games and and maybe videos that bring out more of your thought leadership and webinars and webcasts if you have people that are good on camera in that way. I will say, I mean, I've worked with a broad variety of audiences and a broad variety of industries. Nobody ever really wants a game about choosing life insurance. That's just something that's never going to really click. (laughs) So I think it is about choosing the channels that are right for your communication goals. And for that, and kind of how I've how I've built my consulting practice is by focusing on branch-driven content strategy that starts by first establishing a message architecture or a hierarchy of communication goals. Because we can bandy about terms like transparent and authentic and modern. I've heard so many organizations say that they want to be perceived as more modern, but until we take the time to unpack 
what that means. I mean, to some people, that's like mid-century furniture. To some people, it's an uncomfortable experience to be modern. To other people, it's cutting edge or bleeding edge or leading edge, and they differentiate between those terms. I think until we unpack the language that we use to describe our communication goals, we don't have a good understanding of their priority and hierarchy. Once we do that, though, then we can start to determine, all right, well, how do we choose the appropriate channels and content types in which to communicate? And how do we prioritize content and design to support those different channels? I think that's how we operationalize the work of becoming trustworthy brands. And back to your previous question about the role of designers and content folks in all of this, kind of within that broader marketing umbrella, when we start to prioritize those different channels and content types, that's when we can establish those more consistent, cohesive experiences across our entire marketing ecosystem. Yep, great points. I love that the notion of you don't have to be everywhere and you don't have to be everything to everyone. I think in these times especially, it's important to know your audience, know what you do well, know what your best positioned to do and how you can best serve your audience and use that insight to kind of guide your plans moving forward. Because like you said, there are so many different channels, tactics, opportunities that it's so easy to get lost in it. So just picking a lane and figuring out where to focus, that allows you to be great at certain things instead of just okay or mediocre at a lot of different things. Yeah, do fewer things and do them well. well. And I think that's also what helps inside organizations too, so that a team isn't stretched thin across so many channels, but rather everyone can understand how to get in line to prioritize certain channels, activities, events, so that there is that shared sense of purpose. It, It turns out that also saves money because when people do feel like their work is aligned with that shared purpose, it helps retention. It helps people feel more proud of their work too. And that's always a good thing. Yeah. Great point. Well, Margo, I know we're at the end of our time together. Thank you again so much for kind of walking through some of the key points and takeaways from your book and also just really what's driving your work. It's really fascinating and and so many different layers and areas to dive into. So really excited to have the book out there in the field and we'll encourage everyone to uh, check it out. But to close things out, would love for you to kind of, if you were to look into your crystal ball, so to speak, for what's to come in 2021, how trust and marketing will kind of evolve and really if you have any closing recommendations or words of wisdom, because you you brought up earlier this world of cynicism and noise, misinformation, disinformation. I mean, we're experiencing it on a personal level in politics and media, and and it's really bleeding into how we perceive things even in, in our work. So any closing words of wisdom to kind of help guide us as marketers, as the doers, the people who are actually creating the content, rolling out the campaign so we can be more successful in the new year? Sure. I would say we build trust by staying the course, by remaining consistent, by not rolling out big changes now. I think if you're a marketer, if you're a creative director, if you're a copywriter or a content strategist, now is not the time to overhaul your brand. Now is not the time to make big changes. 
give your audience that sense of familiarity and trust in what they already know. Don't ask them to learn a new interface. Don't ask them to learn a new name for your company. Now is the time to stay the course, do fewer things and do them well, and strengthen those bonds through consistency by investing in the right amount of content to support that familiarity and by maybe exposing more of what your organization is going through as you continue to hold fast and stay true right now. Love it, Margo. Again, really appreciate you taking the time out to chat with us. Again, for all of you out there, the book is called Trustworthy, How the Smartest Brands Beat Cynicism and Bridge the Trust Gap. It will be out in March. We'll include a link in the show notes so people can learn more and hopefully pre-order. Again, so nice to meet you, Margo. Hope to have you on the show again soon. Really appreciate the time. Thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. And to all of you out there, as always, if you have any comments for us on this episode, follow-up questions for Margo, please feel free to drop us a line at B2BMX on Twitter. We'd love to spark those follow-up conversations. This is a fascinating topic and so important in this day and age. So encourage you to follow up and continue the conversations. And of course, if you haven't already, please subscribe to the pod. We'll be having more fascinating conversations like this one with Margot over the coming weeks, as well as replaying some of our top rated content from our events. So be sure to get new episodes delivered to your preferred podcast player. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and frankly, everywhere else. Thanks again, everyone. And we'll see you next time.